Please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We've come as far, really, as verse 4 here. I mean, when you look at what we've been studying, just the miraculous work of Peter and the Holy Spirit and the leading of Peter, by, excuse me, the Holy Spirit by Peter and indwelling him and leading him. And we see multiple times where Peter's filled. Today, we're going to actually see a third time where Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people believe or try to teach, well, you only need to be baptized once in the Holy Spirit and, you know, that's it. You have everything you need. And clearly, as we read the account today, we see that Peter comes multiple times and asks, as well as the other disciples do, for a fresh filling, for a fresh filling. So again, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And uh, we'll begin right around verse 5. If anybody needs a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have one of the ushers bring you a Bible. Everybody good? Okay, let's bow our heads. We'll pray and we'll begin. Father God, we just thank you here, Lord, that you're in our presence and our midst, Lord. And we thank you, God, that you're going to touch hearts here, Lord, this morning. You're going to set captives free. You're going to, God, uh, just minister this word so gently and perfectly, Lord, into the hearts of your people as we come to worship you here, Lord, as we, we just thank you that you even prepared our hearts, Lord, through the worship that we just had. And God, now we just want to sit and rest, receive from you, block out the cares of this world, Lord. Let us receive from your living fountain. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so what's happened up to this point, as you remember, we've had 5,000 come, well, we had the original 3,000 that came that got saved that day. Then we had another, you might say 5,000, because really we're talking about just men, men only in verse four. So that could be somewhere around 7,000, 8,000 when you count women and children. I mean, this is the early beginning of the church. Now, technically, we don't use the name church or really Christian until we get to Antioch, as many of you know. That's when we really establish this idea of Christian and church. And, and I, I can't wait till we get there because we'll talk a little bit about that because many don't know the name Christian was actually not a good name initially. It was used in a negative way. But it's what we understand as we are called by the way. Jesus Christ is the way. So as we, as we look at this here this morning, and we're moving off that, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, and I, and I have to tell you, I don't fault them, but they're going to come and challenge Peter and John, because they're going to see this boldness that they've never seen from what they would say is common men. And as they come out and see this boldness, they're going to challenge them. And again, I don't fault them for that. Any religious leader should be able to look and say, why are you teaching what you're teaching? But when he lays it down hot and tells them that Jesus Christ of, you know, of Nazareth, then we see the heart's response. And it's rejection. This man has been with Jesus. And once they heard that, and once they saw that, they wanted nothing to do with them. Their insecurity began to take over, and, well, they were empty. So as we look here in verse 5, it says, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, that's 70 plus 1, that would have been the Sanhedrin there, okay, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, Annas would have been, one that was a high priest and Caiaphas would have been Rome appointed. So when you look at the two of them, first of all, both of them should not be in power under Jewish law. One was supposed to die. The other one was to pick up uh, the order and carry the priestly order like that or, or what have you. And that didn't happen. Instead, they thought what was right is that they would both serve that way. Again, many times we can think of something as a good idea, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the will of God. We have to be careful. We test everything in the light of Scripture. So we see Annas and the high priest Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. 
And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or what name have you done this? Now that's, when you look at that, what that is, is that's, that's interesting because that's sort of redundant. When we see power and name, that's redundancy there. If you look at the Greek, what he's really saying is, by what are you doing this by? The power that dudamos, what is that being done? But also by what name? In other words, he's asking what character? By what character of man? By what are you doing this? So it's sort of redundant that they ask this this way, but that's what they're saying. In verse eight, then Peter, now notice with this with me, circle it, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you might be saying to yourselves, wait a minute, Pastor, I remember we read in Acts chapter two that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. How can he be filled again? Well, this is how we know as born again believers in Christ that we, just like Peter, the disciples, just as we read in the, the works of Paul and the epistles, that we need constant filling. That's how it works with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a continuous and a constant filling. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Epe in the Greek, right? Coming upon us. It gives us the power, the resources to carry out the work of God. Not for you and I, but to draw people unto the Lord. It's for his kingdom. It's always vertical. He doesn't give us the power in that way so that we could go up to someone and, and tell them how great we are or how terrible they are. Right? You'll, never see, you'll never see the giftings or the, the, the giftings of the Holy Spirit that way being used that way. If it is, it's not done in decency and in order. And it's certainly not scriptural as we read and read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12. So clearly we see here, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that comes first. The filling comes first. And said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Can you imagine? Peter? 70 plus one, there's 71 of them standing there, all the religious leaders, knowing that this group of people is the, basically are the ones that send Jesus Christ to the cross, that convicted Pontius Pilate to turn around and issue the death sentence. And now Peter, before this, couldn't even be close to that. Remember when he was in the outer courts and he was going up and there was the barrel of fire and he was trying to keep warm and the woman came to him and said, you are with them, you are counted among them. He says, I know not what you're talking about, right? Three different times he does that. And so we begin to see this, that, that as he turns around and he, he goes through this, that there's a difference here. And the only thing that's changed is what? What has changed in Peter's life? Christ is still Christ. Jesus is on the cross. What is the difference? It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what is the, produ- you know, what is the produce of it? What's the fruit look like? Boldness a boldness for the gospel. You see that with me? He looks at the rulers and people. I can't imagine how afraid he was. But he stands up and he says, rulers, people. And he's gonna lay it down hot. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, he cuts right to the point. What are you bringing this accusation to us for? Why are you going to arrest us? or he arrested them. Why? Because we healed a helpless man. Do you remember that? The man that was lame, 40 years old, had been lame for 40 years, sitting at the beautiful gate, the gate that's 75 feet high, covered with bronze, one of the most beautiful gates, the gates of entry as you go in. And as he's standing there, he's looking at it. And he says, Peter says, stand up. And he reaches out his hand and he lifts him up and he begins to walk out. And immediately he goes in and, and everybody in the temple sees this. Now they didn't come from a sacrifice service. They came, remember, for a worship service 
to give praise because Jesus Christ already paid the sin. There was no sacrifice needed further. But as he's standing there, he says, this is what you're convicting me of. I just want everybody here to hear that. That's what Peter's saying. All 71 he is. I want you to hear what you're actually convicting me of. That, I, that we, and actually he's going to say, Jesus Christ himself healed this man. Now you and I, as we look back 2,000 years, we're kind of like dumbfounded, right? Like that's the accusation? And we already read in earlier parts of chapter four in the first four verses as well as the end of chapter three that they did what? They glorified God. It wasn't like they, these men, Peter and John, drew disciples unto themselves. They didn't draw people to themselves. They drew people to Jesus. So it's not as though it's blasphemy either where you know, the accusation is, well, you're, you're impersonating God by doing the work and then taking the glory of God. That's not what we see here either, do we? This is truly a matter of the heart, the wickedness of the heart here. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, just to make sure, because Jesus was a common name, and by the way, his surname is not Christ. You with me? It's not like Mr. Christ or how you doing today, right? He's the Savior, he's the Messiah. That's what that name means, Messiah, Savior, Christ. Anointed one. He's saying, and, and by the way, I know Jesus, the name, was a common name in that day. He goes, so I want you to also understand, I'm not just talking about any Jesus, but this Jesus that I was talking about is Jesus of Nazareth. The very man, through Pontius Pilate, that you crucified on that cross. Now, I don't know about you. You know, I think of that Dale Carnegie book back in the day. Remember that? How to Win Friends and Influence People? I don't know about you. I, I, I can't help but thinking. I get the boldness of the Holy Spirit here, but I'm thinking this is not how we win someone to Christ. You go out, you take your Bible thumping bat and go, okay, better up, boom, you know, no. But he testifies and lays it down hot. These, these men, the Sanhedrin, which is like our Supreme Court, they needed to hear this. They needed to be cut to the heart. So that there was no way that then when they get to heaven someday, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. Really? You don't remember Peter and John standing there telling you of me? Yeah. Wow. He said, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is who's done it. It's Jesus it's not us, it's not you, it's nobody else. We don't matter. Jesus Christ matters, and Jesus Christ gets the glory. And that's what he's saying here. Now, I don't know if you didn't, you know, if you're catching this, if you're, if you're tracking with me here, go to the account here. You're in the first century, you're hearing this the first time, you're the Sanhedrin, this is being presented to you. Somebody makes an accusation, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man you killed, the man you put on the cross, but by the way, he was resurrected, he was raised from the dead. Now, what would most of us do at that point? Town out on the field. If somebody's bringing an accusation against you, what's your normal response sometimes? To defend yourself. What do you mean? What do you mean? This Jesus of Nazareth, I did that. What do you mean? Notice they don't do that. Notice they don't question the resurrection. Notice they don't question that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, ascended, and they don't question any of it. Why? Because there was no doubt that was not the point. 
That was not the point of, of the accusation. The accusation wasn't, hey, you don't know this man. Oh, they knew what they had done. They knew the account. This wasn't a mistaken identity or I didn't know that was the one. I didn't know he was the Savior. He was the Messiah. Oh, no, they knew exactly what they did. The 70 plus one, the 71 like that. You see, I think God brings that out to us to show us again that when we look at this, many times when we go to people and we openly share the gospel, it's not a matter of they don't know who Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. Some people have never heard of the man, the God-man, they'll say. I remember Jubilee Day, we went out and we met people and the kids went out. And, you know Jesus, do you want to know Jesus? No, I don't know who that is. Some people walked by and honestly said they really had no idea. Surprised some of us. Shouldn't. Not in the days we're living. But there are those that know who he is, but choose to believe in themselves as a God. Their will be done, not Jesus's will be done. And that's a matter of what we see here, and God is pointing out very clearly for us, for these rulers and these elders. This is not a mistaken identity. They have no problem with the accusation being charged. They have no problem with the account that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. If they thought that not to be true, this would have been the point where they would have went, time out. The account's wrong. What do you mean, Raisin, that we never saw that? We know nothing of that. Notice they don't go there. They know it to be true. I don't know if you thought about that before. And so Peter, I'm sure, as he's standing there and the Holy Spirit's leading this, because Peter, no way you know, prepared for this message. It was beautiful. It was simple. It's one of the greatest sermons ever because it's just right from the Holy Spirit and there's no man, woman, nothing in it. It's pure. It's from the Lord. So he turns around and he, he says that and, and as he looks and he says this, I can imagine he's looking at their faces and he's not seeing a surprise. They're not surprised when he says he's raised from the dead. They're not caught off guard like, what do you mean? Raised from the dead, the resurrection, what are you talking about? At that point, he now, I believe the Holy Spirit leads him in verse 11. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, what does the cornerstone do? And we read this, I mean, this is a very famous messianic psalm, right? We know this, Psalm 118, verse 22 in that area. What do we know about this messianic psalm? What was a cornerstone to do? Any of you builders in here, architects, engineers, what does the cornerstone do? It's a stone of alignment. It's a stone of alignment. It's, it's what you align off of. When you're building and you lay out your foundation and your footers, that cornerstone was meant to align because it takes the two walls and it lines them up correctly that they meet in a 90 degree or supposed 90 degree, right? We know that square is not truly square today anymore. But in a true 90 degree, that's what it's supposed to be. And Peter has no problem through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you rejected him. Notice it wasn't, you didn't understand who he was. You didn't, again, none of that. You rejected Jesus Christ. He says, he's become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there any, or nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love this passage. Circle this in your Bible. There are so many out there today that subscribe to pluralism. You may not know it under that name, but they, they use the term of many ways to heaven. 
you know, Jesus was a good man, but I'm not sure he was the Christ, the Messiah. Or even, you know, you look at Muslims, Islam today. They will believe that Jesus was a good man. He was even a prophet, they'll tell you. But this passage right here in verse 12 is an exclusive passage. Every other religion, every other belief system, it's mutually exclusive. You can't subscribe to Hinduism, Buddhism, put your ism, humanism behind it, and yet say you subscribed to the way of Jesus Christ. It, they're exclusive. God has designed this. Don't, don't get upset with me if this is the first time you're hearing this. This is the Lord. This is his word. And he said there's one way, and it's through the man Christ Jesus. He said there is no other way under heaven. But many teachers today, many pastors, many have succumbed to the delusion and the grandeur of their hearts that they've decided, well, you know what, that's really rigid. That's not very tolerant. I love tolerance. I mean, you realize we're in one of the most tolerant days that we've ever seen in church history. Do you know that today? And, and, and in our country specifically, you look at the martyrs. If you, if you receive the voice of the martyrs, or you read, I mean, we have a more tolerant system in place today against everything but Christianity. But I'm all for tolerance. I mean, you, you go back and read the early church fathers, even Constantine, you go 300s, Augustine, you, know, Augustine you, you read them, and you see what happens when everybody came in and it was a rule mandated by the state that everyone was to believe and follow one religion. It wasn't good. You follow the Crusades again with Christianity. Not good. God didn't try to trip people up. He made it very simple. There's one way that you can be saved. There's no other name under heaven given. That means that everyone has to make a decision. That means that a non-decision or no decision is still a decision, isn't it? Following it out, simple logic. I don't know if you know the term in psychology or philosophy called Ackman's razor. Usually the simplest, straightforward path is the right one. That's not convoluted, but almost simple in common sense. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. He didn't make it works-based so that no one would be disqualified. He didn't turn around and say, well, you've got you've to do this or you've got to stand and rub your tummy, hit your head five times, do, no. He made it so simple that everyone could come. And he also warned us in the end times there would be others that would come and what would they say? Follow after me. Fallen and false spirits that would lead men away. We know that there would be a catching away one day. I believe we're in that time actually, the last days. You might think Revelation, you might be going back, think of Daniel and all the prophecies that were given, Ezekiel chapter 37, 38. All these things should be coming to your mind right now. What did even Peter say? He said there would be a falling away. I have to ask you that question. Who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to believers or non-believers? He was speaking to non-believers, right? No. I saw some of you shaking. No. No, he's speaking to believers. 
He was speaking to those that were being caught because of itching ears, honeydew. They liked, they liked to hear what they wanted to hear. They didn't want the full counsel of God. He said there would be a catching away. They, 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 would, they would follow after what? A debased mind, they'd be delusion. And we're seeing that today in great extremes. And, and it's only the beginning. As, as we read in Matthew 24 and 25, what does Jesus tell us? It's the beginning of the labor pains. These are just the labor pains. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, so some of us like to think it's just Peter there that's full of boldness, and maybe John's going, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? You're gonna get us arrested, man. What are you doing? No, this is boldness of Peter and John, right? So I just wrecked the movie in your head, right? And perceived that they were uneducated and untrained. I, I have to disagree there. I have to disagree with the, the understanding here of these trained men, if that's what you want to call them, these religious leaders, these rulers. Now, they may not have been educated by the school of Gamaliel. They may not have been educated by the Pharisees, the scribes, you know, the Sadducees that way. But they were at the feet of Jesus Christ for three and a half years, the best discipleship boot camp ever. You all here, sitting under the word of God, are receiving more than any seminary or cemetery, I mean, sorry, seminary can give you. I'm still on that, yeah. But I will say also, I'll be careful. Education, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with seminaries. I just want a seminary that'll teach the word of God and not man's opinions because they're trying to publish, because they're trying to get research dollars. I don't have a problem with education. I mean, we've seen God use educated man like who? Daniel, right? Daniel is quasi-educated. I think of David. I think, well, right now, who else are we reading about? Moses, right? Samuel, you know. But when we really think of true education, you know, scholarship, maybe Moses is the one that really fits that bill. Maybe Daniel and those other guys, they really were, they were trained more like the way Christ had trained these disciples by spending time with him. You want to know more about Jesus? You want to know about, more about the word of God? Spend time with him. And it'll save you $30,000. How about that? So they marveled. I mean, they looked at this and they, 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 they said they perceived that these were uneducated and where they made the mistake was untrained. Oh, they were trained. They went through the best discipleship boot camp ever. I mean, think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter five and six, seven. You think of even Jesus Christ going to the cross, watching their Lord, and then as he ascended for those 40 days, he was with them, as he began to pour into them and say, this is okay. I haven't forsaken you. I'm not going to leave you, but I've given you everything you need. Follow me. He didn't say follow after another man. He didn't say there's another pope. He didn't say anything like that. Jesus said, follow after me, the living God. He says, I'll guide you and direct your ways. How do we gain more faith? By spending time with Jesus. Well, you, many of you can quote the word to me as I can quote it to you by hearing of the word, right? But it's by spending time with Jesus. And they marveled. I mean, they were surprised by this because 
what, you know, and they realized it just come to them at that point because I don't know them saying Jesus Christ is Nazareth. Maybe that wasn't the giveaway. I don't know. But now they're putting two and two together. They're a little slow. And they realized that he had been with Jesus. So I want you to see two things here. First of all, I want you to see the boldness of Peter and John. God tells us that there was boldness in Peter and John. But the other thing that we see and capture through this was love. You might be saying, Pastor, what are you talking about? Notice that how Peter is handling the, handling the word of God. He's giving them the gospel. What's his hope at that moment? Is he trying to convict them, make them feel bad about themselves and just have them walk away sad? Or is he hoping they'll come to repentance? Right? Is that your hope here today? For your loved ones? For strangers you don't know? You can't have boldness without love. And you can't have love without boldness and truth. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. There's nothing they could say. They saw what it was happening. But when they had commanded them to go outside, out of the council, they conferred among themselves. What were they doing? They began plotting vain thoughts. Plotting thoughts of ways that they could come against him. Saying, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done. Again, notice they don't raise any objection at this point. There's no objection there to anything that Peter or John has spoken to them. Not a single objection. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They don't, they don't disagree with any of it. They, they really don't. But he says a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Underline that. We cannot deny it. People often look for all this proof extra biblically and I can give you a lot of it. I can give you the apologetics. I can go back and, and tell you about the writings of Josephus, the writings of Titus. I can go back and quote the early church fathers. And I can do all that for you. And we could spend the rest of today and I could present the proof to you. Because it's, it's absolutely that clear, without a doubt. But when I read this verse here, this is coming from the enemy of Christ those that do not believe, those that do not subscribe to what he was suggesting, the way love, truth, mercy, one way under, you know, no other way under heaven, one name. And even his enemies cannot deny who Jesus is. He's God, and they couldn't even deny it. So next time you're sitting with someone, and there's someone saying, well, show me, you know, how do I know Jesus is Lord and Savior? Well, you bring them right to this passage and say, even, even his enemies, even the Sanhedrin, they couldn't deny it. They had no denying this. What does that mean? That means it's the truth. That means, my friend, right now, you need to make a choice. And you look at that person with boldness and love and say, what will you choose today? You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of evangelism, the beauty of presenting the gospel. It's, it doesn't have to be original and creative. I would argue it shouldn't be. 
There was nothing that Peter did or said here that was original that you went and said, wow, he entertained me and I heard something different. Is there anything in this sermon? I'm looking at all of you right now. Is there anything that you heard in this sermon today, not talking about me, Peter's sermon, that you're going, boy, that is the first time I've ever heard anybody say that Jesus is the, 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 you know, the way, the truth, the life. There's no way to the Father but through him. That, that, that he was crucified, that he was dead and he was raised. And No, most of us have heard this many times. But what I want you to see is that it's a heart issue. And what Peter and what John does, and through the Holy Spirit, he exposes the real issue. They're not debating about who Jesus is. So many times when we go out in evangelism, we like to get into the debate. I'm going to tell you Jesus, you're going to tell me anything but Jesus, and we're going to fight back and forth. That's not what we see here. That's not peaceable. That's not what God is doing through Peter here. He's simply presenting the truth, and it is what it is. Whether you believe it or not, he laid it down hot. What he did do, though, as he did call, and he will call, well, what are you going to do about it? Because if this is true, if this man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the only way, and in your mind today you believe in this polaristic agenda where there's many ways, well, they're mutually exclusive. One way is wrong and one way is right. It gets pretty quick to the end, doesn't it? And it's not about, you know, arguing of the deity of God or... You know, was he a prophet or a... It's very clear. There's no way, there's no name under heaven by which a man could be saved but Jesus Christ. He makes it so simple for us. Through them is evident that all who dwell, we just read that, in the Jerusalem and we could not deny it, but, did, but so that it spreads no further among the people. Wow. Knowing. That he's God, but what is it? What are they afraid of now? Why don't they want it to spread among the people? What are they worried about? Losing control. The religious leaders are afraid of losing control, right? I mean, they're priests. Remember what, what I've shared with you about priests compared to prophets. Prophets are much like pastors today. In other words, as the Lord leads, they they find food, you know, and what have you. Priests were guaranteed a salary. Priests in the Bible were guaranteed a salary. Again, it makes you think differently about, you know, Jeremiah, who was of the priestly line, who could have simply walked that way and would have been taken care of financially for life. But instead, he said, no, this is wrong. And he lived the life of a prophet, not sure where his next meal would come from. See, that's where the rubber meets the road in some ways, right? You really start to understand what you believe when you're pressed to that point of, Lord, I have to make a choice. And, and Christians, we, you know, believers, friends, we see this today. You start to think about the bakers out there, right? We've read about those in the news. People that own businesses and companies. I don't know if you read the re- recent headlines within, in, in uh, Europe, specifically in England. There's a, uh, I think it was a math teacher, if I'm not mistaken. He stood up and he was teaching in the class and he began to do a math, a math equation, you know, an algebra equation going through just, you know, every day. Two biological girls, notice I said biologically, two girls are sitting there. 
They solved the equation. Their grades had started improving. They were getting extra help working with him and other teachers. This is a good thing. And so he says, good job, girls. Great job. Way to solve the you know, uh, equation there. Well, one of the girls was identifying as a boy. And so she was, she was insulted by that. And in the UK, they considered that a hate speech or hate crime. So what happens is the man is immediately brought in for disciplinary action before the council at the school. And they said, did you call them girls? And he said, yes, I did. He said, why did you call them girls? He said, because they're girls. And they looked at him and he said, really, what would you call them? Students or by their first name only? Wow. So now we can't use pronouns, we can't use adjectives, we can't, now, now we're getting really into the grammar of it all. They then tell him they're going to put him on suspension. They actually suspended the teacher. And he sat there and he didn't even, de- didn't even defend himself. He just said, all I did is compliment these children. The disciples, Peter and John, all I did is heal this lame man. This is why the Sanhedrin's coming against him, isn't it? We've already read that. The 71 leaders are coming against him because he healed the lame man. All this math teacher was doing was teaching these students how to solve an algebra equation. Do you see the times we're living in? And so he's put on probation. So whether he's getting pay or not pay, I'm not, you know, but it's coming to a country near you. You know, our discipleship men's armor, our, our men's armor and men's and armor study that we had yesterday, I looked at the guys. And my first thing I said around the table is, why aren't there more guys here? Not because I care if the group is big or not. But where are the men today? Where are the men that'll stand in the gap for Jesus? Where are the men that aren't looking for comfort and ease and just, you know, when it's convenient? Where are the men that'll pastor their homes? And I looked right at the guys. I know some of you are working, so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to browbeat anybody here. The point I'm looking at is, it's on my heart. Where are our men today that'll stand in the gap? And the guys looked and said, yeah. I said, it's kind of like Sunday night prayer. Why isn't this place filled with saints coming on their knees and praying and seeking the Lord God? God's already told us in his word, he promised that if we would do what? If we would pray and repent, he would heal our land. And yet we have many people at home praying for revival, but they'll never step foot in a church. They'll never turn around and gather together in prayer. I don't understand it. Well, maybe I do. There's a spiritual battle afoot. And the enemy will use anything he can to distract you and pull you away because he knows that prayer is a mighty weapon. Because it means you're spending time with God and you're pressed in. You've made a choice. You're like these disciples standing here, these men, you're standing in boldness, women in boldness. This isn't just for men, this is men and women, in boldness this way. And so, as we see this here, back to our text, it says that what? So he spreads it no further among the people, threatened, he actually, the the religious leaders, said let us severely threaten them. And isn't that what we saw with that math teacher? They severely threatened the math teacher. Isn't that what they're trying to do to you and I today? They're threatening us in the workplace. 
HR, if you espouse other ideas that, that aren't tolerant, again, tolerant to everything but Christianity tolerant, but if you don't do that, then you're going to get written up or you're not playing nice because you're not, look, I got no problem with other religions. I really don't. You want to believe what you want to believe? You believe it. I know there's one way. My Bible tells me there's one way. You know? I don't have a problem with that. Do I want everybody to repent and turn to Jesus Christ? Absolutely. You better believe it. But I love that we have the freedom to believe in this country what we and I think because we, we've been blessed because of that. But, but I believe that freedom will be gone soon. We're, we're, we're having the, the pause button's been pushed. We've had Trump and other politicians come in. We have this time where God has given us a time of repentance. He's drawing his people close. But it's not going to last forever. The Bible tells us it's not. Read Ezekiel. You read Ezekiel 37. You saw the dry bones came to life. 1948, Israel, Jerusalem became a nation again. Read chapter 38. Five nations, four of them are Muslim, one is Russia, come against Israel. It's going to happen. And we're going to have to take a stand. Are you with Israel or against Israel? Genesis 12. Will you bless Israel or will you curse Israel? Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. It's in the word of God. It's not my opinion. What I think doesn't matter. So he threatens them like that. And from now on, they speak to no man in this name. They were threatened by the very name Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They were threatened by that name. That tells us what? There's power in the name of God. There's power in the name of Jesus. When you pray, do you pray in the name of Jesus? When you pray for healing and you intercede for your brothers and sisters, are you doing it in the name of Jesus Christ? He's told you to. He's called you to. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, I love this passage. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. You be the judge. What is he telling them? He's telling them, look, and I would say this is very much for us today, Christian. If you are being asked to do something in your workplace, in the military, wherever you are, I understand and respect the chain of command. I understand and respect government because God tells us to be under government that way, to respect our leaders, to honor that, but never to compromise the word of God in its place. We just read that in Exodus, didn't we? We saw the ladies that were midwives, they came out and they were praised. The midwives were praised, right? In Exodus chapter three and four, why? Because Pharaoh had said, kill all the male babies. He was the leader. That was the law of the land much like it's the law of the land today with abortion. Allow these babies to be murdered. And he turns around and says, hey, it's the law of the land, it's okay. And the, maid, the maidservants, said, you know, the midwives, excuse me, say, absolutely not, we will not do it. And I thought of this very passage here. I wonder if Peter and John stood there and thought, you know what, Lord? I remember those two saints. Now, clearly there weren't just two. There were many, but these are the two that were listed in Exodus chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and all that. He says, I remember those women. When they stand in the gap, when they stood up and said, no, for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. We are not going to do the things, whether it's the law of the land or not, when it goes against the Bible. 
But that's one of those, that's one of those choices again, isn't it? That's one of those things where the line has to be drawn in the sand. Those midwives, they could have said, well, you know, it could cost us our lives. If we don't follow Pharaoh, the king, we could die. We, maybe we could be put in prison. Friends, I want to tell you right now, and you read the verse, verse, voice of the martyr, we've talked about it. There are hundreds of thousands of people all around the world right now that are sitting in prisons that are being left for dead for the name of Jesus Christ. They made their choice. Are you going to make your choice today? What are you going to decide today? Are you going to follow in the convenience of Christianity? Are you going to be all in? Are you going to be purpose, you know, focused in that it's, it's God, his will be done? Are you going to stand up and say, abortion's wrong. Things that violate God's commands and laws, they're wrong. I don't want to give my tax money for that. So you find other ways to do things. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to raise a rebellion here. <laughs> the Bible's very clear. Peter's very clear. We're to respect the laws of the land until such point as they do what? Violate God's word. Why am I telling you this as an under-shepherd today? Because I believe with all my heart that you all, if not already faced with it, I know I was at Microsoft and HR, I saw things that happened, already faced with it in my workplace before when I used to work with them. And I'm sure some of you are facing it in your workplace today through HR and different things that you're being allowed to say and not say. But there will come a time where you just holding the very word of God, the Bible, will be considered a hate crime. The enemy was very clear in 1960s when he took this out of the schools. And prayer he took out of the schools. It was deliberate. It was intentional. If we create a biblically illiterate society, one that doesn't know the word of God, how do you know where to stand? And before that, you had hundreds and thousands of years. Think of the Reformation. We just celebrated, what, 500 years of the Reformation recently? Think of Martin Luther, Zwigli. All right, you know, you look at that. What was that about? Yes, I understand the 95 Thesis pounding on the door, what that was about in the indulgences and the whole thing of selling that way. But what was it really about when he was talking about sola scriptura? It was about you and I today. Many of them were burned alive, even the 15 and 1600s, so that you and I today can hold our Bibles and read and listen to God and meet with God without any distraction, without interference from a man, a woman, anybody. This is what we've been given, and much is given, much is required. Do you realize that we have the whole counsel of God, 66 books, what more do we need? We know the story, I hope I'm not ruining it for anybody. We won, we have victory. Now it's a matter of living it out. Now it's a matter of getting after our father's business for every single Christian out there and them getting involved and we go out and we reach the loss for Jesus Christ that none should perish. That's what it's been about. I don't care where you go. I don't care to what Calvary Chapel you go. Where do you go to one that's got 8,000? You go to one that's got 100? I don't care. It should be the same mission. I don't care what church you walk into. It should be the same mission because it's the word of God and it doesn't change We don't change to tickle and entice people. 
It's not my job or your job to turn around and entice people to become Christians. You're to present the living word of God and you're to stand. That's all he's ever asked you to do. The blood's not on your hands. We read that in the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter two, son of man, as he says, go out. He says, but if you do not, he says, I'm standing you to a stiff-necked people, but if they will not heed you or listen to my word, then they'll be given over to the debased mind. It's no different. Our God's not different. He doesn't change. He's the ancient of days. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His character never changes. So they're fearful. They said, don't teach in the name of Jesus. Whether it's right or wrong, he says, you be the judge. And what is he telling them? You seek God. You be Bereans. I'm paraphrasing. You seek God here. Notice that he didn't draw them to himself or try to even convince them likewise. That wasn't his job. His job was to present the truth and allow the Holy Spirit to convict and dwell and lead. That's what he does. He's our comforter. He's our teacher. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, now understand this idea of further threatening. This isn't like, you know, hey, I'm going to take away your dinner or something meaningless. These are the same men that killed Jesus on the cross, that watched him being beaten beyond any recognizable human figure in history ever. What he suffered, we've never seen the likes of ever in history. These are the men that could do it. They had the power and authority and they would have given them up to Rome and they looked right at them as they were threatening them. And what did they say? And what happened? Something miraculous here. You can't explain this. I mean, we don't see it anywhere. You know, we don't, we're not taught this in the world many times. Stand up always for what's right. You know, we know there's consequences, but what, what happens here? They're sent to the stake, they're all killed, they die, right? No, read with me. So when they had threatened them, they let them go. God wasn't done with them. God had a plan. And no man or woman is gonna do anything about that. No different than Pharaoh the king when he wanted to turn around and oppress the people, the Hebrews at the time in Exodus because he didn't want them to multiply because he was afraid, again, we see insecurity, that they were gonna do what? Take the land or something like that. Join with the high coast priests, the old previous rulers that were in, in, uh, in um, Egypt at that time. Every time you see this, men, you come through and you read the the. the the scriptures like that, we continue to see the idea of power and what it does. It corrupts, and it corrupts absolutely. People become, they, they're changed, they're driven by it. But those that have true power in the name of Jesus Christ, we see something different. We see humility, we see meekness. We don't see them you know, being Nicolaitans and lording over other people. They do just the opposite of that. He says he let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God. They knew what they were doing, and they still tried to accuse them for what they had done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of the healing had been performed. 
And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I imagine they were in shock too, you think? Man, we just stood in boldness. We told the Supreme Court what we really thought and we laid it down hot, baby. And they looked at us and they said, don't do it. And we said, well, you judge. We're gonna teach the word of the Lord as God has shown us. And then they let us go. What? Yeah, that's the power of God. That's the power of God. Doesn't make sense, does it? But every time you oppress Christians, every time you afflict Christians, we don't die, we multiply. We grow. We grow in power. We grow in stance. We grow in numbers. Why? It's been done throughout all of history. Every time they try to kill the Jews, they multiply. They grow. And it's beautiful what Jesus has done in preserving. Jeremiah 31, 31 tells us there will be a day when they will bow their knee to the living Christ and call out to him. I believe that's right soon after Ezekiel 38, right? Right after that great, you know, Ezekiel 38 happens, we go into a great tribulation if you're looking on the, the last day's time scale and there's a point where they think they're hopeless and they call out to Messiah, Yeshua, and they say, Jesus, save. It's probably all they ever had to say. And then he tells us, he gives, he gives them what? New hearts and new minds to believe after him, to be obedient, that they could all lay their plowshares down. Are you kidding me? That's our God. I love it. So they went and they told all that was done and said to them. So when they heard that they raised their voice. So I want, this is interesting, this word here, this idea in raising their voice in the Greek. To God with one accord. What this speaks of in the Greek here um, is this word idea here is a despotos, which is in the Greek means kind of this idea of volume or raising, but but. The one accord here means that it's not a prayer meeting. And I love prayer meetings. I love Sunday night prayer meetings. I love to see the manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I love all that. But what we get from this, it's like a good prayer meeting. When you're at a prayer meeting and you hear people praying, and what are you doing in your heart? One person is speaking. You're not interrupting each other, right? Just when we pray. But what happens? What In your heart, either your head starts doing this, and what do you start doing? Amen. Praise Jesus. Yes. Yes, what are you doing? You're agreeing in accord. You're agreeing because one person is speaking what the Holy Spirit has put on all of our hearts. That's unity. And if you've never experienced that and you've never come to a prayer, come out on Sunday nights and pray. You'll hear somebody, you'll be sitting in the back and you'll hear somebody pray. That was what I was gonna pray. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's giving it to us and we're just bringing it forth. And he's getting praised for it. I love that. He says one voice, or with the, raise their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. Did they need convincing? No. They were standing in the gap. They knew it was, he was the Lord God. What are they doing? They're worshiping. They're proclaiming. They're proclaiming truth. They're saying, God and I can imagine Peter and John sitting there going, God, what we have just been through, we would never believe on our own accord. But God, we want some more of that. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. You want more trouble? Let's call it Christian trouble. You want some more trouble where you want to get after it? They almost just were threatened with their lives, maybe their children, cut their children's throats in front of them. That's what we see today. That's what they're telling us. 
Are you afraid? My God says you don't need to have any fear. He says, what can he do to you? What can they do to you? If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, absent with the body, present with the Lord, you have complete victory. You need to walk in that confidence. You need to walk in that joy. You're not a victim. No matter how much you get played as a victim, you're never the victim. You're the conqueror through Christ. You're a conqueror of love, with love. All things are possible through God, even when it doesn't make sense. So he says, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Look at this beautiful worship here. I love that. Who by the mouth of your servant David had said, they know their scriptures, man, don't they? For someone that's untrained and uneducated, they know their scriptures. Three and a half years, and now all of a sudden, the Lord's just bringing these things out on the tablets of their hearts. Psalm 2, this is Psalm 2 I'm about to read. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The king of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord Christ, against his Christ. You see, they begin to understand the words of God as in the very application before their lives. They started to see how God's word literally applied to their lives. And they began to quote it and then walk in it. What is wisdom? What is wisdom, friends? It's the application of knowledge. The Bible gives us much knowledge and wisdom, but it's for you and I to apply the truths, as I just mentioned earlier, to walk in it. That's where the victory comes from. It's like Philippians 4, 6, and we pray for that peace that surpasses all understanding. But we don't take the peace as though it belongs to us. It's as though, God, are you feeling it today? Do you feel like giving me the peace today? Some people come at it that way, really. And if that's you and you're hearing this, God wouldn't have promised it if he didn't want to give it to you. Now, this ain't a faith and prosperity gospel. This is the promises of the word of the Lord. He said he would give it if we would come and receive it. Just like salvation. It's a free gift to all, but you have to receive it. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. I love this. To do whatever your hand. What are they proclaiming here? God's in control. That's what they're proclaiming. God's in control here. Why are they proclaiming that? Because the best way to satisfy or squelch any of your fears to do what? Get outside yourself. Right? If you keep looking inside yourself, I'll tell you what, you're not going to get over your own fear that way. You've got to take your eyes off of you and put it on Jesus. And sometimes that's a minute-by-minute minute blow. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever had, you know, doubts and depression or anxiety. Maybe I'm the only guy. Sometimes it's a daily thing. But I give it up to the Lord. I confess it to Christ. And then I put my eyes on him and I read it and I meditate and I read it and I meditate until those feelings and thoughts flee. Sometimes it's an all-day event. Sometimes it's one minute. It depends the spiritual battle before me. It's no different for you guys. We're not alone. 
Nobody has arrived. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's got this figured out. So if you're sitting there and you're keeping quiet because you're going, I don't want people to think I'm weird. Hey, guess what? I'm the biggest weirdo of them all. As Paul said, you know, I'm the worst of them all. He says, your hand, it gets it off us and puts it back on God. Your purpose, determined for to be done. God's in control. I think of Stephen, James. I think of, you know, the prison, the martyrdom that they would go through. I have no doubts they would recount this over and over again. God, you have it all. It's all in your hand. I'm in your hand, Lord. And you know what that did? That strengthened them. That encouraged them. Now, Lord, look on your threats and grant to your servants with all boldness. (laughs) They're praying for more. (laughs) I mean, you look at it, they're praying for more boldness. They're praying to get into more Christian trouble, that they may speak your word. The other leaders are telling them, step down, be quiet, shut up. Don't speak the name of Jesus Christ. And John and Peter, after just getting threatened in their lives and maybe their kids, their families, whatever else, what happens? They're in there praying for more boldness. They're praying for more. Lord, give me the word. I'm just getting started, Jesus, and I know you are too. Give it to me, Lord. How about it? Do you have that here today? Are you standing in that gap there today going, you know what, man, life is hard, sometimes unbearable, But through your Holy Spirit, I'm praying for that boldness. I want to get into some good Christian trouble. Notice I said Christian trouble. Not worldly trouble. Christian trouble. In other words, getting after your father's business. That's what they would call Christian trouble. Or I guess how I'm using the word. They want all boldness. I love that. By stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is radical prayer. This is miraculous and radical prayer. They're actually asking for more healings and more things to be done that's going to cause them to be arrested, beaten, and eventually martyred. All of the apostles were martyred, every single one of them. First, we have actually Stephen, who was an apostle. He was a deacon. He was martyred first. You know Acts chapter six and seven in that area, and then we have who the first who is the first apostle, James. And they're praying for more of it. I don't know about you, but I would have been there. Lord, please keep the harm from me. Please protect my family. Please don't, Lord. We don't. It's getting too real. We need to kind of settle it down. Can we spread this out a little bit? How about another year or two out? Then we'll get into a little bit of the scrapping again. Not these guys, man. These guys are like, you know what? We want some of what Peter and John got. Get us some of that. That's foreign to many of us today, isn't it? That's foreign to many of our prayer lives today, isn't it? I think we all need to start praying like this. We want revival. We want it to begin in our hearts. We need to be praying like these men are praying with real conviction, real surrender. I don't know about you. I read that. Man, I was, I was convicted. Lord, my prayer life. God, I, I want some of this, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. Now, we're not talking about some of the, the we don't know, was it a big earthquake? Obviously, it was some kind of earthquake. Was it a shaking where it took them off, you know, broke the walls? Who knows? 
Maybe it was something just they felt. But they knew that they heard from the living God. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute, I'm confused. Pastor, now this is three times I see Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit and at least twice that I've seen everybody else being requested filling for the Holy Spirit. So I'm gonna say it again. If the disciples need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the apostles need to be filled, do you and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work God has in our lives? Yes, we do. It is not by our resources. But I'll also tell you the other thing. I always say just because we see something done in one book of the Bible, does that mean it's doctrine? Or does that mean like when we saw the apostles and they were filled for the first time in Jerusalem, we don't take trips to Jerusalem and hop on the plane and look for the upper room, do we? So the promise of the Father can come, right? No. We know we can come in and pray, have hands put on us, and we pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know that this isn't likewise? Maybe this was just then. Maybe this was just for 2,000 years ago. That's a fair question, isn't it? We want to be Bereans. What's the litmus test? We talked about it. What is the best commentary on Scripture? What is the best commentary on Scripture? Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's good hermeneutics. So if we go to the Pauline epistles or Pauline epistles, what do we see? We see other men being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We see other men being filled with the Holy Spirit. That tells us it's not once and done. We don't see them going back to an upper room, do we? No. So we know we're not supposed to do that. How about baptism? We see them being baptized. We see it other places. Okay. How about other things? All right, Lord, we see it. Other books. Okay, Lord, we're to do it. It's for today. How about foot washing? Doesn't everybody love to get their feet washed? Oh, my. Man, the stench. I'm not going to lie to you. That's what I fear. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. No. What? We see it done once, one place. Now, I know there's churches. They love to wash people's feet. God bless them. That is not my calling. And I don't see that as your calling, and I don't see the Lord calling you to do it either. It was once and done. So take a shower and, and, and be blessed. <laughs> so they're filled with all boldness there and with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Man. This is the third time that we see Peter filled this miraculous prayer, this radical prayer. What do you say we pray for that today? For the moving of the Holy Spirit in us that way to just do a radical miracle in our lives, to give us boldness that when we leave this sanctuary here today and we go out into the mission field, that we do it with great boldness. Is that your heart today?